0: So you maybe didn't know it, but the devil's a fisher of men too. The devil is a fisher of men too. Jesus has sent us out to be fishers of men and to bring them to the salvation that he provides. Well, the devil is fishing in those same waters, but the devil is trying to fish for a very different reason. He is trying to bring men to eternal destruction, not to eternal salvation. Now, as you all know, when you go fishing, you cannot just throw a hook in the water. You can try it if you want to. You're not going to be very successful. And what you need if you're going to go fishing is you need a lure. You need bait. You need something to attract the fish, to trick them, to think that what they're about to bite doesn't have a hook in it. And that's what the devil uses. The devil requires bait because if he were to come up and tell you, I'm going to offer you a miserable life and then eternal damnation. How'd you like that? Well, nobody's going to bite on that. So what does he do? He has bait, he has lures, he has a whole fishing rig to deceive the children of men, to lure us away from the immeasurable blessings of life in Jesus Christ. And it is up to us to remember that the lures that the devil dangs in front of us, it's just a dead worm. It's disgusting. You look at it and you go, why would a fish put that in their mouth? And Maybe the angels look upon us and say, why do they keep falling for that one? And Moses is going to warn the people in this chapter tonight. He's going to remind them of what they're not supposed to do and lay out in front of them what they are supposed to do and all the blessings that are around it. But then he's going to spend another chapter and a half warning them against the different lures, if we're going to use that illustration, that the devil will use to draw them away from the blessings that they're going to receive in the promised land. And it's a correlation for us to the life we have in Christ. This is the beginning of a new section in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12 through 26 is going to look at specific commandments. Whereas before we were looking at general principles related to the law. This is going to get more specific now. But that is how we're going to outline and study this passage tonight as I just looked at it. Let's begin by reading the first seven verses of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Moses is speaking. For the whole book, it's going to be Moses speaking. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So Moses begins, and we shall begin tonight, by looking at the thing we're not supposed to do, the negative example. He's telling them what they are not to do by telling them, you've got to get rid of every opportunity to commit idolatry. Worship at this time in other cultures took place on the hilltops, on top of mountains where they believed they were closer to the gods, or it took place in groves. They would plant orchards or they would plant gardens and they would go in there and worship as as a symbol of fertility. When it talks about the Asherim, that is a plural of of the word Asherah, who was a fertility goddess. And so you would go into the grove, which is very fertile. And so you would pray for fertility for your body or for your crops or whatever the case may be. And they would always inevitably have carved images. There would be an idol there. And the Lord is telling them that when you go to the promised land, you are to destroy every place where this kind of thing went on. You're to go to the top of every mountain and destroy the altars there. You're to go into all of these groves and chop down the trees and burn it with fire. Take the idols, break the idols, and burn them too. We will even read in other uh, passages in the Bible where they would execute the false priests and the false prophets and burn their bones on the altar to desecrate the place, to remove the memory of what this was ever used for. Because this is what people believed, that the God's name would reign there. And so God says, you're gonna remove their name from the land. How do we know that this was accomplished? Well, because I had to tell you who Asherah was. It's not somebody that we know about. But Moses is telling them not just to avoid the pagan practices of Canaan. He says, don't just, just not do what they do, break it. Every opportunity to commit that sin, I want you to destroy to avoid paganism, idolatry, and false worship. In the same way, the Christian life is not simply a preference for Jesus. Can I say that? It is not just a preference for Jesus, meaning I acknowledge all faiths and they're all good and they all have something of value, but I prefer Jesus. That is not Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity anyway. Christianity is a renunciation of everything else. It is a destruction of idols. It is cutting off every possible lifeline between you and heaven except that of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what has always been required of the people of God throughout salvation history. Not just that you don't do bad things, but that every opportunity in your own life to commit sin and to worship a false god needs to be destroyed. We see this in Acts 19 in the the city of Ephesus, where there's an amazing story that happens where there are these itinerant Jewish exorcists. They went around casting out demons. They were not believers, and they really were, were probably more along the lines of charlatans than anything else, but they try to cast a demon out of this guy, and they say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they would just kind of throw whatever name out there they could think of, right? Whatever powerful name they could hear. But that possessed man turned and looked at them and the demon inside him said, Oh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Who do you think you are to command me? And that demon beat those guys up, ripped their clothes off, and they ran away bloody out of that place. And that story filled Ephesus that the name of Jesus means something, that this demon knew who Jesus was and knew who Paul was. So after that, this is what happened in the church. Acts 19, 18 through 19. Many of those who were now believers, so this is in the church, this is not outside. Believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A fortune. There were people in the church that were saved but had not given up their spell books and their witchcraft and their astrology and all those other things. But now they hear, oh, Paul was telling the truth when he told us that these things are not just neutral. They're demonic and wicked. And I don't need some demon coming into my house and beating me up and chasing me away naked. So they showed up to the church. You talk about revivals. And they've all said, Paul, I have something to confess. And they dump all their stuff out in front of everybody. I've been hiding these spell books in my house. And then somebody else breaks down crying and runs out of the room. And they go, well, where's she going? And she comes back and she's got all her stuff too. And there's a revival in the church of people bringing all their false idols, all of their magic books, all of their spells and incantations. And they're throwing them into a big pile. And they burned it all. And it cost 50,000 pieces of silver. Can you imagine if we burned $50,000 worth of stuff in the middle of the room here? Why was it not sold? and given? Because we don't want anybody else to have it. <laughs> it was burned. What an act of devotion that was. The Bible mandates radical separation from evil. Jesus, what did he say? Matthew 5, if your right hand causes you to sin, yeah. cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, dig it out of there, man. Get rid of whatever's causing you to sin privately and publicly. And this is an interesting one because I was wondering today as I was was praying and I was actually walking around the room thinking like, Lord, you have all these instructions to the children of Israel to destroy these pagan shrines. I said, but I I realize I'm living under a different dispensation, but is there any way to apply this other than privately, like for the individual life? And I believe there is. Christians are not to engage in violence or riots or any such thing. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. Read your New Testament. However, the Christian does have an obligation to make every effort in his own community to remove wickedness and establish righteousness. And I realize that that is not very 21st century American. Because we have this understanding, well, we are going to live in a pluralist society. We're going to live in a place where lots of different people live. We can't force our religion on one another. So in our house, this is how it goes, but uh, we can't push it publicly. I absolutely reject and abominate that belief. If Christians are living in a community where we get to vote, then you better believe our voice ought to be heard. And there are people that will even tell you a Christian should not vote with their religion because that's pushing it on somebody else. Sorry, this is a democracy and we live here. We should be vocal about these things. So you've seen this in The Nation, that, you know there are good people that are doing this. When you see weird sexual stuff going on in schools, when you see monuments going up for things that shouldn't be remembered, when you see laws being passed, the church ought to say, I have a voice and I say no. Don't let the world tell you that that's religious intolerance because secularism is not tolerant of the church. They're not playing by those rules. They're using religious liberty as an excuse to put their thumb down on righteousness. But the church has an obligation, not just privately, but as much as can be done in righteousness to publicly say, not here. Because of sin, wrath has come upon the world. And what Moses is telling them here and what Jesus said and what Paul was teaching, what I'm teaching today, repentance is the only cure for the disease of sin. Break it. Don't just try to avoid it, break it. That's the negative example. We move on to number, verse 8 here, down to verse 14. They're going to give us the positive example. Here's what you don't do. Now, here's what you should do. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, meaning in the land of Moab before they enter the promised land. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. His name, not Asherah's name. There shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. That's what worship looked like in the temple, in the tabernacle, rejoicing, celebration. You and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So they're not doing paganism. We're breaking the high places. So here's what they are supposed to do. True worship in the promised land. For our our, uh, time, abundant life in Christ. He's saying camp life is over. They've been traveling in the wilderness for 40 years with the tabernacle, which was a tent that was made to be broken down and carried. And they've been moving around from place to place for decades. Well, the Lord says that's about to change. You're all going to settle in your own land. And what is going to change as far as the religion was concerned? From now on, there will be a central location where you can worship. Before, everybody just camped around the tabernacle. It was right there. You could see it. But when you settle the land, I'm going to pick a central place. And there were several different places that the Lord chose. There was Hebron where the tabernacle was pitched. There was Shiloh, where Eli ministered, where the tabernacle was pitched. And of course, ultimately, into Jerusalem, where the temple was built under Solomon. David was the one that brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem. It was a story. They had to kind of do it twice because they messed up the first time. But the temple was built, and so Jerusalem became that place where the Lord selected. On a side note here, uh, this passage right here is the most debated passage in Deuteronomy. I know that seems odd to you, let me, it's odd to me, let me explain why. There are people who mirror read into this passage and say, the reason it's emphasizing the central location so much is because during the revival of Josiah in the book of Kings, uh, they, that's when Deuteronomy was written in order to establish Jerusalem as the central place. Up till that point, the high places were fine, but Josiah who is famous for demolishing the high places ordered this to be written. And because people draw that conclusion, they then say, well, Deuteronomy then had to have been written about a thousand years later from when the Bible says it was written, which means you also have to pull back Genesis and Exodus and all of that. And that is what gave rise to what is called the documentary hypothesis, which was the first major volley in what is called higher criticism. All these people that believe there's two Isaiahs and that Paul didn't write any of his books and that Jesus never claimed to be God, all of that finds its root in how somebody interpreted this passage right here. So, we don't believe that that is the case. We believe that Moses wrote this book, and we talked about this at length in the introduction of this book. But you can go in, uh, and understand where it's coming from now. The point of this passage is that we, as God's people, are to worship according to God's word, not our own culture. You're going to go join Canaanite culture in one sense, but you're not supposed to worship like them. And not to your own preference. You can't just pick your favorite hill and, oh, I feel God's presence up here, so we're going to offer uh, (laughs) sacrifices. He said, I'm going to pick the spot, and that's where you're going to worship. God's mandating that. And this is actually part of the debate that Jesus engaged with with the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. Remember, she said, oh, you're a religious guy. Okay, well, you say that the place God picked was Jerusalem, but didn't Jacob worship here? So what's the answer, Mr. Religious Guy? And Jesus said in John 4, 21 through 24, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know meaning Samaritans. We, Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he is kind of saying the Jews are right on this one. But more important than that, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. They're having a debate over what Deuteronomy 12 was referring to. And Jesus says, well, if you want an answer to that question, the short answer is that it's Jerusalem. But he says, but something's about to change, lady. There's going to be a time very soon where location is going to have nothing to do with your worship of the Lord. It's all going to have to do with your spirit and your heart. Worship of the Lord is now through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are his temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we, our bodies, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Stephen went around Jerusalem preaching that, they stoned him for it. Because they said, you are trying to violate Deuteronomy chapter 12. That God has one place where you can worship. And you're telling us that the temple doesn't matter anymore? Heresy, they said. But they missed the fact that Deuteronomy 12 didn't say you have to worship in Jerusalem. It said you worship wherever God says. And God spoke through his son that now I'm going to dwell within the hearts of my people. He was trying to tell them that things have changed for the better. But they were so tied to their tradition they couldn't receive that. You know, before we meet Christ, we are just like the Israelites. Moses calls them out. He says, everyone in this Camp is doing whatever is right in his own eyes. That's a verse that's going to be repeated often in the book of Judges. You're just do whatever is right in your own eyes. But when you come to rest, he says, when you come to the place God is bringing you, you're only going to worship as he says. And that is exactly what happens when we find salvation in Jesus. Before we find Christ, we're doing whatever feels good, whatever we want. We're just picking our own religion. Some people invent their own religions. I love the testimony of Keith Green, you can read his biography, but there's a section there at the beginning before he got saved, he literally invented his own religion and was bringing people around to try and, we'll we'll get high and we'll read the Bible and we'll do some meditation and, you know, it didn't go anywhere obviously, but that's how it is before we find Christ, even if it's not witchcraft, if it's just secularism, well, I'm kind of coming up my own philosophy, I've got to make my own meaning, whatever works for me. But once you find the rest that Jesus can offer you, all you want to do is say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How are we to worship now? Because it's not so much about where, it's about how. In spirit and in truth. And what is that truth? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins and then rose again from the dead so that I could today offer you forgiveness freely for all who believe. That's the truth. We don't do DIY spirituality. Well, I like Jesus, but you know, the Muslims also have some good theories. And also, I really like this Buddhist apologist. It's got some good stuff. And, you know, let's not forget science. We've got to put science in there too. No, spirit and truth. You don't get to worship at any place that feels good to you. You get to worship as the Lord has directed. There's only salvation to be found in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 now, and we'll go down to verse 28, a little longer section here. We've seen the bad example. We've seen the good example, the truth. And this section is all about the blessings and liberty that come when you reject the bad example and pick the good one. However, so there's going to be a centralized worship location. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain, or of your wine, or of your oil, or the firstborn of your herd, or your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God, in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns." And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. That's a great sentence to underline and memorize, I think. Let me read it again. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Verse 19, take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. Sorry, vegetarians. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. Genesis 9. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose, and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat." Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Okay. Camp life is ending. It used to be, according to Leviticus 17, verses three and four, anytime you killed a sacrificial animal for any reason, you had to bring it to the temple and, or tabernacle and offer it as a proper sacrifice. So that included Bulls and cows, goats, sheep, pigeons, anything like that, that could be sacrificed in the temple, potentially had to be sacrificed, even if you were just going to eat it. But the Lord is saying, now that you're going into the promised land, that requirement I am lifting from you. Now you can eat a cow or a goat or whatever in your own house. You don't have to come to the tabernacle. And he says, doesn't matter if you're ceremonially clean or unclean, you can still eat it. They were still required to drain the blood, because gross. And they still had to bring their tithes and their annual sacrifices at the holy place. He's like, you're not missing out on Passover, you still have to come there. But at home, if you're just eating dinner, that's fine. It's a common misconception that religion means rules, when in fact, it means rules. Freedom. In fact, did you know that there is a verse in the Bible where Paul says, "Why are you submitting to all these rules?" Colossians two twenty. The Apostle Paul said that. It's like, Why do y'all got so many rules? I wonder if he might come to some of our churches and say the same thing. Once we make the choice to honor God. Once you say, okay, I'm not worshiping the false idols, but I am going to worship the Lord as he desires. I'm going to place my trust in Jesus Christ. You don't find bondage. You find liberty in your salvation. In two ways. First of all, you get liberty from sin. When you worship Jesus, you are no longer bound to addiction and habit and to your past. You're forgiven. That stuff is no longer a mark against you. And sometimes that's the hardest thing. It's like, I could kick this habit if I wanted to, but I don't know if I could kick the guilt that I have from indulging in it for so long. But when you put your faith in Jesus, it's forgiven. When they go into the promised land, the Lord was reducing the regulations, not increasing them. When you come to Jesus, your life gets better. It doesn't get worse. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you more rules. I'll give you rest. Learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not here to slap you around, Jesus said. But not only that, number two, it's freedom for right now. Christian maturity is not more rules. Believe it or not, Christian maturity is fewer rules. We talked about this at length in Romans chapter 14. But listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free. Can you honestly say that you are living your Christian life like a free man? Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are not free to sin Obviously, but other than that, you're free. Sin aside, so leaving sin, obviously we're not talking about sin, but when you put your faith in Jesus, the whole world opens up for you because you cannot be defiled by external things. Romans fourteen fourteen. Paul said, I am persuaded that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for whose conscience believes it is unclean. Right? He's saying, there, there is no such thing as unclean food. But if you've got a, a conscience that is just like, I feel like I'd be violating my conscience before the Lord in doing this, well then yes, you'd be violating your conscience and that's a sin. But Jesus said in Matthew 15:11, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man that defiles him. There are plenty of really mean teetotalers. They don't drink, but they're bitter, angry, shouty people. Do you think that you are better off than the person that drinks every now and then? Jesus said the opposite of that is true. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul said, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And he uses that word richly intentionally because he writes the rest of that verse to Timothy. He says, tell those who are rich to enjoy what God's given. Because God gives us things richly to enjoy. That's what Christian liberty is. Therefore, why would we chase the corruption of an idol? Why would we chase after sin which bounds us up? Well, I, I, I still want to commit some sins. Okay, which one exactly? And then explain to me how it will be better for you. You ever try to explain to an addict that they need to give up their drug or whatever it is? Very often you will be accused of being a tyrant or a Nazi or unfair He's like, you got to give up your drugs. What, all of them? Yeah, you got to give up all your drugs. Well, that's a, you're just a Nazi, man. You're just trying to limit me. It's like, no, bro, you're already limited. I'm trying to set you free. The thing you are participating in is breaking you. And that's what sin is. Therefore, why would we not serve the Lord as he said? If not only do we get fewer rules, but you get eternal salvation. The devil knows about this. The devil knows that his deal is a rotten one and that while God's deal is not only the right one, it's the good one. How is he going to get us to bite the hook? How is he going to get us to do that? Well, he needs bait. He needs a lure. It is amazing to me how much certain fishing lures cost. Especially since you know that fish really love to bite those things, swallow them, and then bite your line off. And there goes a $200 lure in the belly of some fish like Jonah, but it's not likely to come back like Jonah. (laughs) That wasn't even in my notes. I just came up with that. You like that? In this passage from this to the end of chapter 13, we're going to look at four lures that the devil uses that he was going to use against the children of Israel. Moses told them what's what? He says, don't Worship the idols, break the high places. Instead, worship me in the prescribed manner that I have given you. And it will go better for you. I'm, in fact, I'm not even going to make you sacrifice all your meat at the, at the temple anymore. Because I want you to enjoy what I'm giving you. But the devil's going to try to mess it up four ways. Four lures of the liar, we'll say. And the first one we'll see is in verse 29 to the end of the chapter. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed by you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods." Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. The first lure of the liar is that of curiosity, meaning temptations that come from within. Nobody's pressuring you. Nobody's pushing you. It comes from within your own soul. Moses forbids here Israel from digging up old religions. He says, don't go try to find out how they worshiped Asherah or how they worshiped Baal so that you can try that yourself if maybe the rains aren't coming or if you need a little extra money. He reminds them of the great sins of these people. He says, everything that I hate, these people have done. So don't worship me that way. That's important to note. Because very often what they would do is they would still say they were worshiping the Lord, but they would worship him in the manner of the Canaanites. The best example of this is when Jeroboam, the king, who separated from the kingdom of Judah, built golden calves. And he said, this is the Lord your God. They weren't saying, let's abandon the Lord and worship a calf. We'll say, this calf is the Lord. And it was very slippery. It allowed them to justify what they were doing. But God says all of their pagan practices, I don't want that kind of worship. But they could get curious and start to wonder, Because this was very common belief in the day. They believed that a God was tied to the geography. That God's lived in certain territories. That's why Jonah tried to flee from the Lord. Because he thought, the Lord is in Israel, so if I go away to Tarshish, God can't get me there. But God found him. And what does he say to the people? I worship the Lord who made the earth and the sea. It's like, my God has all of it. But this was the belief at the time. So if we're having a hard time conceiving a child in Canaan, we've got to pray to the Canaanite fertility goddess. And that's what they would do. We can be tempted also to go after sin or even to go after false worship and false religion for no other reason than our own inner curiosity about what they do. How is it done? And the more you begin to learn about it, the more you watch that TV show about that thing that you would never do, you start to get curious about it. And it starts to breed a lust in your heart for those things. And then when the chips are down, you think, you know, I I know exactly what to do. I would never, I've talked to folks like this, I would never perform a seance myself, but I just find it fascinating to hear about what these people do. Oh, the devil is deceiving you. He's filling you up with all the knowledge you need so that when he finally pushes his all-out assault, you'll go right there. Consider how many Christians are fascinated by Islam. They just have some really good things to say. I mean, we're really kind of all part of the same faith family, aren't we? No, we're not. It's not even historically true. Let's leave that aside. But they spend all their time just learning about them. Oh, you know, the Quran has some good things, too. And I believe that doesn't God reveal general revelation to everybody or Buddhism? How many Americans are fascinated with Buddhism? Well, I mean, it's kind of a neutral thing because it really it's not about God. It's really about your own personal growth and development. Sam Harris, a very famous atheist, is also a Buddhist. What kind of religion is that? That doesn't require anything of you or how many people are are getting fascinated by the old pagan gods. I know I bring this up a lot, because guys, it's like I see it every week. Somebody who's just interested in what Thor has to say. Somebody who's interested in what did the Egyptians worship. And they wanna find out all about it, or even Native American religion. We just watched the Jesus Movement movie the other day, and at that time, when the hippies were moving, everybody was wanting to find out what did the Indians do You know, what drugs did they take? What did they believe about the great spirit? Let's go back to what they were doing. And then you come back to the church and Satan does a good job of making it all seem so familiar and so boring to you. The same way he gets somebody to commit adultery, because idolatry and adultery are really the same thing, just with different people, as he makes the thing that is loving and wonderful and great seem boring by comparison to somebody that you really don't know anything about. Sin seems like liberty, but it's bondage. He says, look at what these false religions produce. Look at the sins that they bring about. Has Buddhism done anything good for its culture that has embraced it? They haven't. Where are the Norse gods today? They're dead and buried. Until some eager historian dug them up and reminded us of them. Would you want to live in an Islamic country? Well, no, but we can, we can Americanize it and we could do the same thing to it you do with Christianity. How about you try the real thing the real way instead of trying to in- introduce this other weird stuff? And not only that, they lack the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation in any of these other things. And we are foolish to be fascinated by them. Even Christians that get so obsessed with Judaism. Well, the Jewish tradition, I mean, wasn't Jesus a Jew? And like, yes. But the Jewish religion as it stands today is in utter rebellion and apostasy against the Lord. They have denied their Messiah and completely restructured all their traditions to make sure nobody accidentally thinks that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Accidentally. In 2 Kings chapter 1, it tells us that King Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, which is Hebrew for Lord of the Flies, the death god, the god of Ekron, which was a Philistine city. Go ask him whether I'll recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. Don't want to tick that guy off. Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there's no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of the Lord of the Flies? The Philistine god? I thought we hated them. I thought they oppressed us. I thought we were enemies. Why do you want to hear what their God has to say? How about you pray to the one God that actually would heal you if you asked? Whatever influence you have allowed in your life that causes you to pine for sin needs to go. What Netflix shows are you watching? What what things are you binging that is putting a fascination and a familiarity and a love for sin in your heart? not saying you've sinned yet, but is Satan warming you up? Getting you ready? It's one thing to be interested in history, be interested in other cultures. It's another thing to start indulging your curiosity about the things of Satan. Do not let your curious mind wander away from the abundant grace of Jesus into iniquity. If your Christianity is boring, how about you actually try Christianity, man? Chapter 13. That's the first lure. Chapter 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The second lure of the liar is charisma. When a big personality comes in and persuades you to abandon Christ. The first one is just internal. Now it's external. Moses warned them, false prophets are going to arise, and some of them will even perform miracles, signs and wonders. He said, you are not to judge these people based on whether or not they can do miracles. You judge them by the words coming out of their mouths. This is important to note, for we are within the charismatic family in the Christian church. And we can have a bad habit of following somebody because they can do miracles or they can heal or whatever the case may be. You listen to the words coming out of their mouth. Are they preaching Christ or are they preaching something else? If they're preaching something else, I don't care what miracle you have done. And this has happened throughout history. Want to know a crazy story? This is from American history. In the early, early 1800s. You maybe have heard of a man named Tecumseh, who was a famous Indian warrior, Shawnee warrior. And he had a brother named Tenskwatawa. Tenskwatawa called himself the prophet, with a capital P, the prophet. And he claimed that he had gone into a trance and had communion with the great spirit, who had told him that the colonists that had come from England and from everywhere else, they were all vile, they, were, they had no souls, they were wicked, and they needed to drive them off of the land by going back to the old ways, renouncing the Christian God, and all the Indians would come together. That's a common historical misconception, by the way. They were individual tribes. They didn't see themselves as one race. But he was this prophet coming around and said, we've got to band together, we got to stick together. And people started to listen to him. And they started to renounce the faith. They started to make war against the Americans. They were breaking alliances that they had made with the Americans. They were slaughtering Moravian missionaries that were living in their villages. And so the Americans responded to it. William Henry Harrison, who was not president at the time, he was the governor of Indiana, he wrote a letter kind of denouncing Tenskwatawa, and he said, hey, if this guy's a real prophet, maybe he can do a real miracle, like maybe make the sun stand still like you see in the Bible. Well, Tenskwatawa, who was no idiot, He responded by saying, fine, on June 16th, I will make the sun stand still. I'll blot out the sun. Harrison said, well, this ought to be good. But he didn't realize, as Tent apparently did, that there was an eclipse that was projected to happen that day. So he comes out of his tent and he waves his hand over the sky. This eclipse happened and everybody freaked out and panicked, right? It's the 1800s, right? The sun is dark, right? And then he says, no, I shall bring the sun back and... Of course, the eclipse ended, and multitudes and myriads of people went after this guy. And he led them to destruction. Not only did they lose that war, but many of them were led away from faith in Christ Jesus for racial reasons. False prophets. Sometimes they are sent by the Lord in order to bring judgment upon wicked people. And sometimes he will allow the devil to perform counterfeit miracles to deceive folks. Matthew 24, 23 through 24, Jesus said, If anyone says to you, Look, it's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Be you Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Karl Marx, or any such person. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. We don't judge people by their miracles, we judge them by their testimony. That's why Jesus in ordaining his church, ordained pastors and teachers to be those that would lead. Unfortunately, we as Christians are often led astray by a lot less than miracles. It doesn't even take a miracle to get us away. Gurus, influencers, authors, philosophers, activists, celebrities, all of these can win our love with simple charisma. Stand up and speak bravely and boldly or perform some act of heroism or speak intelligently even about the things of God and about the spiritual world and we rush after them. False prophets, blind guides leading the blind. I'll come back to it again. How many people want to find out what the Indian gurus have to say? They'll travel around the world to Nepal to talk to a guru which if you talk to Nanda, he'll tell you all those guys are charlatans and liars and know full well what they're doing and laugh at the silly Americans when they leave. Doesn't surprise me because we have people like that here. How do you evaluate if somebody is somebody that you should be following and listening to? How do you evaluate a prophet? Through God's word, through God's word. Purge your influences, Christian. Who are you listening to? Who are you putting into your ears for four hours a day? Who are you watching on television for hours at a time? If they're not preaching Christ according to the gospel, they do not deserve your love or respect or loyalty. They need Jesus. They are desperate and lost. And today has no shortage of influential people that are gathering a following around them. If they're not preaching the gospel, they're false teachers. Do not bite the hook because somebody is popular or persuasive. Cling to Jesus alone. Even if you can't answer their arguments right away, just say, I know Jesus, and I'm not about to be shaken off of this that easily. So that's the second lure the devil will use when he's fishing for you. First is curiosity. The second one is charisma. Now we get to verse six. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace... Or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. Well, I see where he's coming from. No, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. The third lure of the liar is that of community when your loved ones pressure you. Not just somebody you're watching from a distance, but somebody who knows you and loves you and who you love and care about, who is trying to entice you. The penalty for idolatry and apostasy was death. And Moses makes it abundantly clear. This applies to families too. I don't care if it's your kid. I don't care if it's your brother or sister. I don't care if it's your wife. I don't care if it's your best friend. Somebody who entices you to go after other gods will be killed. You are not to pity them. Oh, but if we do that, then I will, they'll die. He says, where, you know, this is a, a phrase that we use, and I'm not talking about the, the deadly sin here when I say this. It's, the Lord is almost like, where's your pride? Where, where's your honor? The God led you people out of the land of Egypt, brought you out of slavery, delivered you through the desert, drove out these people, and now somebody else comes and says, hey, ditch that guy and come with me. How do we feel about homewreckers? How do you feel about a man that would seduce another man's wife? How do you feel about a woman that would seduce another man's husband? Another woman's husband? How do you feel about such people? Well, the Lord says, it's worse when you do that with me. And the penalty for adultery was death too, by the way. But he says, idolatry shall be punished with death. And you, the one who finds out about it, will be the first one to cast a stone. I don't care if it's your little girl over there. Your loyalty to me comes first. No matter who it was, they would be brought up on trial and put to death. Our relationship with God takes precedence over every other relationship, even family and even marriage. And that is not Old Testament harshness. Jesus said the same thing. Remember Jesus, Paul, and the apostles were not innovating They were reminding of what the Bible said and interpreting it through what Jesus had done. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life. So much for self-love, huh? He cannot be my disciple. He's saying if there is any other relationship that is more important to you than this one, You can't be my disciple. That doesn't sound fair. Well, you don't have to serve him. But then I'll go to hell. Well, that's the choice that you have. It's one thing to call out sin in strangers or sin out there in the world. Family's a whole other story, isn't it? I'll tell you guys, I can stand up here and I can preach. I'll preach hellfire and brimstone. Or I'll stand in front of one of y'all and I will call you to, to repentance and I'll call you to do what's right Sometimes I'm standing in front of my own family, I feel like my tongue is tied. And that's not because I'm a bad person. That's because when you're dealing with somebody who loves you and knows you, and you know and love deeply, it's very difficult to have that same kind of intensity that you should have with that person. We are not to give preference to loved ones when they lead us to sin. Whether that's, we're all going to go out and party, Family's going on vacation. We're all going to go out. We're going to get drunk together. No, Mom, I'm not doing that. I paid for this vacation. You're going to participate. You're just being selfish. You're just being stubborn. Well, maybe I won't invite you next time. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go out and engage in debauchery, not even with my own family. Or complain. Grumbling and complaining. Oh, families are really good at this. We'll come home, sit around the table, and gossip and complain and backbite. Your kids see that, by the way. And they grow up and they think, is this what church is? You've got to be the one that's going to put up a stiff arm and say, I'm not going to talk about them that way. Oh, come on, it's just us. It doesn't matter if it's just us. Or even to engage in witchcraft. And your sister-in-law, your brother, who's been wayward, and is maybe starting to come back and is like, hey man, you know, I, I tried one of those psychedelic things. And it just opened my mind. You've got to try it. I'm not into that. I'm not doing that. I, I know, but listen, just try it one time. You know, just go to my, go to my psychic one time. Get your, get your astrology chart done with me one time. What difference does it make? Oh, come on, it's my birthday. Smoke one joint. What's the big deal? Or maybe we're all going to take a stand for abortion. Or we're going to take a stand for trans rights. We want you to donate or be part of it or I want you to call your niece by her new name and her new pronouns now. I won't do it. Whatever vile thing. You might even have to cut ties with some of these people. Well, I thought we were supposed to love our family. Jesus first. There are, I've known men that will even say things like, God spoke to me, but I'm waiting for my wife to give me the okay. Even your own wife, Jesus said. Well, I know what we're supposed to do, my kids will never go for that. Doesn't matter. You have to follow the Lord first. The devil will use your own loved community around you to pressure you to sin, to do things you're uncomfortable with, to keep the peace. Let the boat rock every once in a while for the sake of Jesus. He'll love you for it. He'll bless you for it. You be the one that people need to be careful around. not saying be a jerk, but you'll be the one with strong convictions that people know will not be violated. Well, that always gets his way. Say, "My heavenly Father always gets his way." Yeah. Do not let your righteous love for people become an unrighteous point of compromise. Chapter thir- or, yeah, chapter 13, verse 12 to the 18, now. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you. And drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. Right? Find out first. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. Devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square, and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger, and show you mercy, and have compassion on you, and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. The first lure was internal. It's called curiosity. Second one was somebody from a distance. That's charisma. Third one was your own family and loved ones, community. And the fourth lure of the liar is that of culture. When everybody's doing it. Moses called the people to enforce harem, the devotion to destruction upon apostate cities. Just one more reminder that this was not just some tribal religion that was made up and we're always right. The Lord goes, what you're about to do to the Canaanites, I'll do to you. You should do to each other if you go after these other gods. This would happen in Judges 19 and 20. There's a city called Gibeah that engages in the same reprehensible gang rape that you see in the the city of Sodom. And all of Israel saddled up and burned it to the ground, which they were supposed to do. And while we're not going to be doing that under this dispensation, we still have to resist the pressure of the culture and change it where we can. And I know it is hard to feel ostracized. Sometimes the way the devil gets us isn't through overt temptation. It's just by making you feel left out. Everybody else is watching that show. Everybody else is drinking that. Everybody else is engaging in politics this way. And I have to say, oh, sorry, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. And then we get mocked. And then we have other Christians that are compromising, and they mock us too. We cannot give in to the pressures of a pagan culture, and our culture is becoming increasingly more and more pagan. We ourselves have been so unfortunate as to see this land, which grew up culturally root and branch with the truth, with all of its shortcomings and its failures, the gospel was in there, always in there. But now it is being corrupted and departing from our Lord Jesus for increasingly wicked things. But this is not Abnormal. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Whether it's secularism, with it's false veneration of science, which in my opinion, Christians already knew this for other reasons, but I think the pandemic showed us just how corrupt the pristine reputation of science is. Whatever position you come from on that issue, I think we can all see how politicized and how opinionated it became. Or maybe it's the cult of sexuality. And we do have that. That fetishizes perverse identity. The most important thing about me is my sexuality. That in itself is a grievous sin. Or even if it's something darker, we can have no part with it. I am very concerned that freedom of religion has given way to license and licentiousness. And I don't know what our recourse is as Christians except to pray. What we need is a new revival. But that begins not with the world getting fixed. In fact, sometimes the world does not get fixed in revival as much as we'd like. Go back and read the story. Sometimes it's worldwide transformation. Sometimes the church and a a sizable portion of the community go after the Lord, and that's all you get. As wonderful as it might be. But it begins with the church spitting out the hooks of Satan. Israel was prohibited from worshiping the idols. Instead, they were to serve the Lord as he had ordained it. And the same is true for us. False religion and false piety and sinfulness has to be crushed so that we might obey Jesus. Not tolerated and dealt with and managed, not with a leash, but crushed. You don't put a mad dog on a leash. You put it down. And that's what sin is. Don't you know your soul is contested? That you are being fought over in the spirit at this very moment? The Lord is out there trying to save you, but Satan's a fisher of men too. And he wants you dead. You are being spiritually fought over. Angels and demons, the Holy Spirit and Satan fighting over your life. So you've got to be looking out for his lures in the water, lest you be hooked And I've told you what some of them are today. Moses revealed them to us. He explained it in the terminology of their day and in their culture. I have tried to lay it out for you as it plays out today. Look out for the lures. And some of you today are realizing right now, or you need to realize, you've got a hook in your mouth. And the reason you find it hard to breathe is because that hook is right there. You ever see a fish out of the water when it's got a hook? It's gasping for breath. And the same thing happens in the church. We say, why do I just not feel the same fire that I did? I see the revivals happening, but why don't I care? I know that there's sin in my life, but why do I have such a hard time even feeling bad about it anymore? Because you've got a hook in your mouth and you swallowed it. And now it's in your gut and it's ripping things up. And when someone says it might be that, don't get offended and say, hey, pastor, you were preaching. Now you're meddling. Don't be like that. You've got to spit the hook out. It might even be so far down in there, you can't spit it out. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to come and do Holy Ghost surgery on you. You've got to look away from those things. As alluring as they are, as shiny as they are, they'll rip you to pieces. Look instead to the freedom and forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. It's time for the church to rise to the moment. Is revival coming to America? I don't know, but my job is the same either way. And my God has promised to answer when I call upon him. And he said, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much will the Lord give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You know what should be done in a revival, so why not do it? Spit the hook out. Say no thank you to these things. Renounce the things you've been entertaining. Burn down the bridges. Run to Christ alone because he deserves that.